Hello and welcome to Dior A Common Thread. In this series, we'll explore the constellation of creatives around Kim Jones, Dior Men's Artistic Director, who has masterminded some of the most dynamic and exciting collaborations in fashion. I am Ed Tang, co-founder of Art Bureau, a New York and Hong Kong-based art advisory, and now your host. In each episode of this show, I'll be bringing you conversations with some of the artists who have collaborated with Kim at Dior. From art and fashion to nature and technology, we'll discuss their influences, creative process, and everything else. There was only one artist Kim Jones called to collaborate on his debut Dior Men's Spring-Summer 2019 collection. The man he calls the artist of our time. Their alliance celebrated both couture and streetwear, kickstarting a series of artist collaborations at Dior Men. I'm thrilled to be speaking with Cause today to find out more about his ever-expanding universe. Well, Cause, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Over the past two decades, you've had a series of pivotal moments in your career. One of the major moments seems to have been a trip to Japan in 1997, where you got to know a new network of creatives. You were also approached by Bounty Hunter, the cult brand, to create your first toy, The Companion, giving you the first taste of commercial success. Can you tell us what that trip meant to you? You know, I, I think Japan has been a very important place for me. I was always curious about it, and it was really and seeing some of my friends like Stash and Futura going there and what they were doing that kind of made it seem accessible. You know, when I was in college at School of Visual Arts, I had a friend at Sushi whose brother brought me to Japan for the first time. And that was just in exchange for a small painting. Since then, you've, of course, done numerous projects in Japan. And in fact, you just closed your first institutional show at the Mori called Tokyo First which is also a nod to your first gallery show at Paco in the early 2000s. You said that the Mori show felt like a new chapter for you, at this, and, and it was a sort of point to start fresh. What do you mean by that? I think it was really doing a show of that scale 20 years after the first show at Paco. It's given me an opportunity to kind of reflect on the last 20 years and sort of regroup and just revisit some of the relationships that began at that period and I feel like after the last two years that we've had and, you know, coming out of fully just being home and not traveling at all, that it was really like a great opportunity to get to go on an international flight for the first time. Oh, so you did travel to Japan for the show? I did, yes. Oh, amazing. It was very restricted, but, um, <laughs> but I w yeah, the government permitted me to come and install the show. And that's about it, really. I wasn't able to even attend the opening. I didn't get to see the show for obvious reasons, but I believe you recreated a sort of vignette from your own home with works that you've collected and uh, installed. You created a sort of home away from home. Well, it was actually from my studio. And um, if, you know, if people visit me in the studio in Brooklyn, there's an office area that I have a small sort of collection of other artists' works as well as a, this couch and... It kind of seems to be the place where I always take meetings and hang out when people visit. So we were thinking this is a great way to sort of bring a personal feeling right at the beginning of the exhibition. So we completely shipped the entire room, furniture and everything, 
to the entrance of the show at the Mori. That sounds amazing. You have a reputation of also being a serious and very engaged collector. You know, you've collected works by your peers and heroes, and it is a very impressive and unique collection with a, a range of artists, including Jim Nutt, Carl Worsham, Peter Saul, Joyce Pensato, Ed Ruscher, George Kondo, Mike Kelly, Tomoko Gita, and so many more. What's the common thread for you between these artists that you collect? You know, I don't really think there needs to be a common thread. I, I sort of gravitate towards the things that stay in my mind after seeing them, and I kind of go down the rabbit hole on different artists. Often when I buy a work, I don't know at that time if I'm this is somebody I'm going to start to collect in depth or I'm just sort of learning and finding out about them. I always find that having like original works by, by artists that I appreciate is the most sort of informative way of learning about them. So it's not so much a strategy, it's also like an emotional or intellectual way of looking at art that excites you. It's definitely not a strategy. And I mean, even hearing you say serious collector <laughs> kind of makes me laugh. It's, it's more of like a gathering of things. You know, you, you get interested in something, you want to learn more. I, I think I've done this on different things when I was younger, you know, with buying artist books and you just sort of go down the rabbit hole and you want as much information as possible. You also post works by other artists on Instagram, from Martin Wong to Julie Curtis and Robin F. Williams. For nosy folks like me, is it safe to assume these are works that, you know, are in your collection? Yeah, I mean, some of the works are in my collection. Some of the works are just works I see that I like. And, you know, I realize that as an artist, I have a a pretty big platform with my social media and I like sharing other artists' work and kind of introducing the people that follow my work to just the different things that I'm interested in. And, you know, hopefully they'll take the time to go and learn about them. And then through that, they can learn about the artists they like. And it goes on and on. Absolutely. Your Instagram is definitely a place of discovery and where people also learn about new things. Now, um, being a collector is not just about buying art. You live with the works that you, you know, you've assembled, but you're also very generous in supporting institutions. You know, you regularly loan works to exhibitions, you've gifted works to museums, and you donate works for charity auctions. How important is that for you? It just seems like the, the normal thing to do. As an artist, I hope anyone collect that would own a work of mine would loan it to an exhibition if I were to request it and... For other artists, I want to sort of reciprocate that and have it available for people to see. I, I do love living with the artwork, but it's not important that it's there all the time. I could, I could live without it for you know, several months at a time if I know that it's for a good reason and people are viewing it. What makes you keep something for yourself rather than offer it to a collector or, an, or a museum? After a while, with, with um, looking and sort of collecting other artists, especially the artists that I tend, like, wound up collecting more in depth, I start thinking about what I don't have and kind of the different periods of their work. And now that I'm getting opportunities to have these sort of larger survey exhibitions, I think it's important that I have different bodies of my own work and can kind of look at it objectively and have it there for myself. So when, when the opportunity does come, it's, it's available to loan. We know of you as an artist, collaborator, and collector, but 
Less as a custodian, what some people might not know is that you've been a trustee of the American Folk Art Museum in New York since 2019. What compelled you to get involved and, and why that museum? I mean, I just think the American Folk Art Museum is such a great institution. They just have a real purpose. I mean, what they're showing and shedding light on are all artists and artwork that I'm interested in. And it's great. You get to meet sort of other people with similar interests and think about ways to bring other artists to a broader public. I mean, it's kind of a nice distraction for me from making my own work. I get to sort of switch gears and focus on bringing light to other artists and projects. If art reflects our world and street art says something about contemporary culture, like, do you think folk art, what do you think folk art says? Is it about the cultural narrative of the country, craft, history? To be completely honest, I don't look at the way people are categorized as like folk art or outsider art or self-taught any different than any of the other work that I live with and view. It's just all different artists creating fascinating works that keep you engaged. And the Folk Art Museum is a, it's a specific place, but I don't think it's any different than other institutions with artists. And it actually makes a lot of sense, especially coming from you, because you are someone who breaking boundaries and, you know, defying categories. You had your first New York institutional show at the Brooklyn Museum titled What Party earlier this year. It was a blockbuster show in many, many ways. What did that institutional acceptance and public support mean to you, especially being on, on home turf? Having a show in, in Brooklyn in 2021 was amazing. It's something we've been working on for a few years, but um, through COVID, it just, it just did not seem like a reality that it would open. And I think for my, having my opening was one of the first time I saw many of my friends and the first time a lot of people really kind of left their house and went to a museum. Well, it was mine. <laughs> <laughs> Having something sort of close to my house that I can visit, you know, up until then I've only done shows in different countries where, you know, I install, have the opening, and then I, I don't see the show again. So with Brooklyn Museum, it, it was completely different, and Friends, you know, was easily accessible for the people that I kind of, Doubly meaningful being, you know, right at your doorstep. It was my first exhibition in person, in real life as well, um, during the lockdown. Walking around the exhibition, what occurred to me was, was that some of the newer works like Urge, Separated or Tide seemed almost despairing in, in the figure's sort of gestures and, and emotions. Kim Jones said, you're the artist of our generation and that your work captures our time. Is this sense of melancholy in, in the work reflective of our anxious state of the world or is it coming from you personally as well? I think it would have to be a bit of both. It has been, especially in the last few years, has been a bit of a tense time in the world. But um, I feel like those sort of emotions have been in my work for the last decade or so. But there's always still a dose of humor, right? <laughs> and a silver lining, maybe? I mean, there, there has to be. There, yeah. I don't know about a silver lining, <laughs> but um, there, I feel like humor is a, a great sort of Thing, and you kind of need humor to get by. Yeah, it was staggering to see the range of people, you know, from young to old. It just had such a wide audience. 
The visitor journeys through your career. You know, they look at the early sketches, the tag photos, to more recent paintings and sculptures, and and ultimately into the full blown gift shop. I I kind of saw it as a complete experience. At the end, we get to own a piece of your work. Did you see that as part of the an extension of the show, or you know, this coexistence of art and commerce? You know, I always bring sort of commerce into my work. It's something I've enjoyed since the really the sort of beginnings of getting out there with my work. And it was important to focus on the shop. And I kind of hate when you see a beautifully crafted exhibition and then afterwards the shop is really not considered in any capacity. For the Brooklyn Museum show, the space that I was given, the scale was actually quite large, um, just as a matter of that was the available space. So... You know, it really did seem like an important part of the exhibition. Well, it was, it was great because we got to treat ourselves to some of your um, merch, if you like. There's a long history of fine artists who, who've worked on commercial projects. You've credited Keith Haring as a pivotal influence because he was somebody involved in the art world who wasn't removed or out of reach. So it almost seems like a natural thing these days to be an artist and make products. At what point did you recognize this and started to apply it to your own work? You know, I've always been interested in making products. I guess it's just growing up and having the people around me that having streetwear companies like Stash with his company Subwear and Futura, what he was doing with Moax and really on a sort of more tangible um, personal level, even my friend James with Supreme and seeing the way that has grown over the years. In fact, you started an e-commerce website in 2002 and ran Original Fake uh, between 2006 and 2013. The way you brought your work directly to the consumer and the public is quite radical and ahead of its time. To what extent do you see yourself an entrepreneur as well? You know, I mean, that sounds like a horrible word, but it's No, it's I don't I mean, I mean it in an ad, admirable <laughs> way. Um, no, I think, you know, it is a new archetype for an artist not just to produce work in a studio and let everything else happen and fall into place, but you know, this is taking charge of connecting and, you know, reaching out to your audience. I've always felt since really early on that I, I had to take charge because you know, I realized that if you don't, nobody's really doing it for you and it's in no one's interest to do it for you. So it, it's important to kind of understand how to do the work you want to do and how to kind of be in the world in the way that you want to be and what it takes to do that. And I enjoy the process. Like I love figuring out how to produce stuff and how to, what channels to put it into the world. When I started my website, it was all out of my apartment. I'd get 40-foot containers of toys that I would bring into the house and break down into boxes and ship back out internationally and locally. And at that time, things were a lot slower. So I had a, a, bit, of, a bit of time to kind of figure things out and learn. But it's really important. I think you should know, you know, basically, if anyone's ever willing to do something for you, you should be able to do that for yourself first. So you're not bogged down by logistical challenges and you see it as part of your creative process and making work. Yeah, I mean, I love logistical challenges. It's part of making, it's the same thing, you know, you, how do you form a painting or how do you form a sculpture? You have all these sort of sets of challenges that you have to overcome. And it's the same thing with how do you create your own website and put the work out in that way. There, there's tons of different options on how an artist can exist and 
I think you have to be really careful how to navigate that. You once said that you treat T-shirts like a sketchbook. So it's not surprising to see your close connection with fashion even early on. Your collaboration with Dior wasn't the first time an artist worked with a fashion house, but it made quite the splash as Kim's debut collection for Dior Men in 2019. Did you see it more as a challenge since it was venturing into high fashion? You know, honestly, I approached it the way I approach everything. In my mind, there's not really a high-low. There's just either good or bad. And working with Kim was, was great. It's something I knew I wanted to do for a while. We've spoken about it. I think the real challenge of that project was when he invited me to do it, the, the show was happening just a few months later. So I, I couldn't believe that Dior can get that work of that scale produced in that time frame. Very memorably, you created the centerpiece of the show, which was a 33-foot BFF sculpture covered with 70,000 roses. It was an avatar of Christian Dior himself clutching his dog Bobby in the shape of a, of a limited edition Miss Dior perfume bottle. I'm sure you had free reign of the archives when you were invited to do the show. What was it about Bobby that inspired you? I think in talking to Kim and having it be his first collection, he felt it was important to include Bobby into the... So it was a real conversation. It wasn't just you dictating, so to speak, what you wanted. No, no. I mean, Kim was coming to Brooklyn and, you know, we met in my studio and we were discussing kind of the possibilities. And it was definitely a, a real sort of collaborative effort with the project. You speak of the high and low and the crossover. No doubt it brought in a new audience for Dior and for your work too. The addition BFF stuffed toys and mini Dior suits, I think were an instant hit. <laughs> a lot of people, those who didn't even collect your work or necessarily buy Dior previously went berserk over them. So I think that was a very fruitful and impactful collaboration. More importantly, it was fun. I mean, it was a really sort of a great project for me. I, I had a lot of fun going to Paris for it and watching it sort of disseminate throughout the world when it was released. You also reinterpreted the DOB emblem with your signature double cross-out eyes. Your figure featured heavily in the ad campaign that followed. This seemed almost like a full circle from your early days in the mid-90s, unlocking ads and bus stops and overpainting them with Bendy around Kate Moss and Christy Turlington. In a fun way, you've gone from defacing ads to creating them. Yeah, I've always been interested in communication and reaching people. And in the 90s, I had sort of breaking into ads and before that, just traditional graffiti as a platform. And it was really kind of me sitting, thinking, how can I put my work in front of people? And so when a project, you know, such as Dior comes, it's this amplified audience that's international. It was pre-social media. So in a way, how you reached out to an audience was a completely different thing from what we expect today. Yeah, it's hard to even imagine pre-social media. But, um, you know, in the early 90s, the way I saw other artists graffiti was either traveling to different boroughs and neighborhoods and taking photos. And there was like sort of a small culture of graffiti magazines. Suddenly, there was this boom of now things are online. With the advances of technology and the speed that information and images travel, your work reaches a vast audience at the click of a button. Do you think this mass and instant way of dissemination empowers you as an artist? Yeah, I definitely do think that, you know, artists now have a platform that just wasn't imaginable before. A kid could wake up in China and, and suddenly look at, 
eight different artists in Brooklyn within 30 minutes. It just is unheard of um, when I was coming up. But there's also a lot more information out there, a lot more that you're competing with. I think things move at a faster pace. And it's really important for artists to, to really kind of figure out how they want to exist within that. So that would be the downside of technology, right, uh, as an artist? I mean, there, there's just so much information. And I think things happen at such a pace that it's, you really have to kind of be disciplined and carve out time for yourself to take time and think and make work and not worry about constantly being out there. Which reminds me, so much of your work is personal, but also anchored in working with others, from fabricators, designers, printers, engineers. Collaboration seems to be present from the very beginning, as you also said, and it's a means of creating community. Is that why collaborations are so important to you and so integral to your practice? I think about just being here in a time and place and kind of who are the other artisans that are working at the moment, whether it's a company or another artist. And um, it's fun to work with them and learn about what they do and sort of cross-pollinate the people who follow your work. And it's sort of like a real way to learn about everything that's existing around me. So like getting to work with big companies and seeing how they would roll out a project then can inform me on a different scale with what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, what's remarkable is that you consistently, whatever project that you take on, you do put your own stamp on it. Let's talk a little bit about your characters, Chum, Curves, Cause Bob, Kimpson's Companion, BFF. <laughs> characters that over the years that have come in so many different shapes, forms, material and scale. Can you tell us more about that sort of progression and how you see that vocabulary evolving? You know, honestly, I just use characters as a way to communicate. Um, for me, they're sort of like actors almost that I get to kind of put out different feelings into the world through them. In a way that reflects how you sort of change from tagging and graffiti to using imagery, because that's more a universal language that people can connect with. Yeah, I mean, that's something that happened when I started painting over the phone booths and bus shelters and kind of transitioned from focusing on lettering into more characters and more identifiable icons. I just like the way that, you know, characters exist and kind of ha they have this timeless feeling that don't, they don't age and you can kind of cut right through sort of language barriers and cultural barriers. Well, you've come a long way from phone booths and bus shelters. As a young graffiti artist, you could say that you were an artist on the fringes in the early days. Now you have more than 3.5 million Instagram followers with over 1.7 hashtag results if you search cause. Do you consider yourself in the mainstream now? And what does that mean to you? Yeah, I, I wouldn't know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's obvious that my work is it's out there. It's definitely... You know, I've had lots of opportunities. Yeah, you are one of the most visible artists of our time. You've done projects with Supreme, Bathing Ape, Kanye West, Campana Brothers, Harper's Bazaar. The list really goes on. It's safe to say that you're one of the most visible and recognized artists working today. That's not something that I really keep in my mind when I'm making work. My studio is very small. There's, there's an eight-person studio, and we're often surprised at the sort of scale that we can create stuff. Well, it's a very small but effective team you surround yourself with. Now, you've made some 
enormous projects like the Macy Thanksgiving balloon and holiday, the inflatable companions that you've toured from Seoul to Doha, Taipei, Hong Kong, Mount Fuji and Virginia Beach. Uh, and most recently in Singapore. Clearly you think big, even from your early days of tagging freight trains and bridges and mural-sized walls. Does size matter for you, and did you always think big? You know, honestly, I just think about what the situation of the work would be with the holiday projects. We're putting works in sort of these landscapes that are iconic, I mean, in front of Mount Fuji. It, the scale needs to be large just to have any sort of presence and, um, you know, in Hong Kong and Victoria Harbor, the same work, if it was only 20 foot instead of 20 meters, it would just not be the same. So you do need to kind of respond to the surroundings with the work you create. You've been very vocal about your shows being a response to the architecture and surroundings. For instance, I think in 2016, when you did the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, that was kind of a different setting. You know, we mostly associate your work with an urban environment, and yet here we are with woodlands and stretches of greenery, and that had a very different, I think, result, if I may say that. Yeah, and I, I think just having, you know, these seven meter, 10 meter wooden sculptures out in that environment where they seem almost vulnerable. I think it's a new way of looking at the work. And unexpected, which brings me to my next question. With the augmented reality in your acute art project, all of us can participate. Can you tell us a little bit more about the expanded holiday project and what might be new and what's next? Working with acute has been great. We launched the augmented reality part of acute on I think it was March 12th, 2020, <laughs> like pretty much the day before global lockdowns started, or the, at least lockdown in the United States. And um, suddenly we find ourselves shifting from creating these giant outdoor exhibitions where people will come view augmented reality works to everyone having the ability to just do it within their own homes. And it became very sort of democratic. I love it because it gives me the opportunity to make a three-dimensional work that somebody, you know, as soon as I upload it to the app, it's suddenly available worldwide. And it's very true to the other sculptural works that I make. I mean, if you look at the works on acute, the surface, the sort of volume, the presence feels very similar to a real work. Yeah, I remember downloading it. Funnily enough, it was March 2020, and it was locked down, and there was a sense of marvel interacting with it. I just have one final question for you. Do you still have an urge to return to your roots and graffiti on the streets sometimes? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I see stuff, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd love to paint. I, I wouldn't rule that out. So you are tempted, but you haven't, you haven't quite done it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's an art form that I appreciate. I, you know, I don't... It, it's really sort of surprising when I see people writing about the work that I make now and referencing graffiti and street art. And to me, I don't know what they're looking at, but I definitely, that's a sort of movement that I really appreciate. I feel like it's a very honest and pure art form and, you know, I have a lot of respect for it. So I'm always kind of keeping tabs on it. Well, thank you so much, Cause, for your time and, of course, to our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Cause. All right, thank you. Join us on Dior, a common thread on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm.